Hello, friends, and welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Courtney Staples. On today's episode, we have an interview with Dungeon Masterpieces Baron Durop. But before we get into that, we always want to remind you that if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, follow the instructions, and we'll build your world live on air. If you want to follow us on social media, we're over on Twitter at Let's World Build. If you want to come join our Discord community or you're feeling particularly generous and want to give us money on Patreon, you can find a link for both of those in the description. Oh, uh, also, if you just really want the sweet, sweet patron-only episodes, they're there too. Anyway, on to the interview. Hello, friends, and today we are joined by Baron Durop of Dungeon Masterpiece. Baron, so glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And for those of us who might not know you too well, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, what would you like to know? I could wax poetica for, you know, 45 minutes about myself. It's your podcast. If you want to give <laughs> us the entire life story, the autobiography of Baron Durop, I'd love to sit here and listen. So maybe specifically why you might be on this podcast, but, you know, tell us everything that you want. Okay. Um, well, I'm here because you reached out to me and uh, this is a world building podcast, which I definitely have an affinity for. Um, in fact, I would say that that was probably the bulk of my early RPG experience. I started playing role playing games when I was in middle school. I was nine years old. In fact, my first role playing game was not Dungeons and Dragons. It was a big eyes, small mouth derivative uh. of. <laughs> Uh, oh, what is the anime? Good Lord. I can't even remember. Sailor Moon. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Which is really interesting because I'm actually not like, I don't have a problem with very specific animes, but like, I would not consider myself an anime fan by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But that was kind of my first foray. And once I had that experience, you know, it was I can use these rules to tell stories about worlds with my friends. This is so cool. And then I had a friend who just gave me his Dungeons and Dragons second edition books, just outright gave them to me in science class. Oh, wow. And I asked him why he was doing this. Uh, it was because his mother said that they were of the devil and he had to get rid of them. So he didn't want them to go in the dumpster. So I became the beneficiary. And those two things kind of uh, solidified my start into the, into the practice. But truth be told, I didn't really do a whole lot of like sit down, play Dungeons and Dragons through the vast majority of my middle school years. It was more just, you know, Cold War world building, especially with big eye, small mouth rule sets like uh, Big Robot's Cool Starships. You know, it's who can build the bigger starship, who can build the bigger space station, mm -hmm. you know, and it, it was just, you know, playground nonsense, effectively. But it was a load of fun. Uh, it's probably the only enjoyable part of my middle school experience. <laughs> and I mean that very blatantly. Uh, that is not rhetoric. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but then, I, you know, I really started getting into the like shared narrative, shared collaborative storytelling uh, in high school, that's really when I started to play like D and D the the air quote way it was designed, and third edition had just come out as well, which you know, being a slightly geeky 
a very geeky kind of math nerdy kid all the crunchiness of third edition was just amazing to me oh yeah i look back at it now and i'm i, I you know i disgust myself with how immature i was <laughs> <at that time. laughs> but uh so that's probably when i first started playing D and i played every week for nearly 10 years oh wow, wow. took a break and got married and, you know just dealt with you know changing family life and then started playing again i, I probably took like a three or a four year break from role playing games in general. And I remember telling my wife at the time we're divorced now, but at the time I remember telling her, I was like, you know, I really miss world building. I want to get back into that. So I just started building my own campaign setting. Uh, next thing you knew, I was, you know, going through a divorce and D and D was, you know, a very cathartic and constructive method of dealing with, you know, just personal anxiety and, uh, building a lot of friendships mm -hmm. along the way. And, mm. uh, I was playing D and D three days a week. Oh, wow. I don't know how I had time to do it, but yeah, and three different campaign wow. settings that I had written too. <laughs> so, oh, wow! Yeah, it was wild. Um, I've cooled off now. I'm only playing two days a week, but uh, yeah. So I got into YouTube, started my YouTube channel, Dungeon Masterpiece, because you know I I've played a lot, a lot, a lot, and three days a week is is a three lot days a week for is, me yeah that's yeah. It, it's a lot you know and i was like i've got all this wealth of experience but i'm glad i didn't start it when i first started thinking about mm. a DD youtube experience because i would have just completely wasted everyone's time but uh i remember watching hanker infernal you know then drunkens and dragons now runehammer and uh he was the first person on youtube or like in general the first person to get me to understand that rules of the game are something more than air. Like I had just taken for granted that the rules are there and this is the way we play mm -hmm. and what those rules mean as far as like the meta narrative or the, the meta construct that is the game. Like there's a certain contract that we agree to when we play by a certain rule set and, him really showing that to me made me step back from wanting to do the YouTube channel for probably, oh, eight years until I really wow. started to think through like what my relationship is with the game. How do I relate to the, the very tactile uh, aspects of the game that I feel a lot of people take for granted and don't even recognize are there. Uh, so Anyway, that, that's the long-winded version of how I got here, mm -hmm. you know, uh, with the Dungeon Masterpiece YouTube channel and how I'm here today. I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, communication theory, geopolitics, which I'm sure we'll get into more, and various, you know, hegemonic systems and how that can be used to influence storytelling. Mm -hmm. But yeah, anyway, I've rambled on long enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've actually got to ask a question about your YouTube format because I yeah. was really surprised and pleasantly surprised that is at how short and concise your videos are. And I, I just love your emphasis on that, like less is more approach. Um, yes. How did you decide on that minimal format, especially in this kind of sea of long form videos that are going on? So I have a background in, let's see here, let me restate this. This is a really good question. Okay. So. I come from a marketing background, but by trade, I'm also a data engineer. Mm -hmm. And this has afforded me the ability to work with people in marketing and 
get into the gritty mechanics and understand much better how the algorithm actually works. Like there's a lot of nonsense about, you know, what people say the algorithm is, mm. you know, I've, I've written AIs. I understand how they work, uh, <laughs> you know, and then I've also got the insights of the marketing team that I work with in my normal day-to-day job. And really what it boils down to is people want long form content because they want something that they can be engrossed in. Mm -hmm. But they also want short form content because it's easy to listen to. And I got to this point where I was consuming a bunch of D&D content, like, you know, about eight years ago, five years ago on the platform. And the only person who I felt like could really deliver long form content and actually provide meat was Matthew Colville. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure there are others out there. I just haven't found them. You know, the algorithm has not been smart enough to shove them in mm -hmm. my face. So, you know, if, if there are, you know, leave links in the, in the description, guys. I want to know where they are. <laughs> I don't even know if you can leave links in a description in the podcast. Uh, <laughs> you can, but only we read them. So it's, uh, it's okay. a little different. Yeah. So never mind then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... I also found that people were trying to milk this gamification of the algorithm with like, mm -hmm. you know, 15 to 20 minute videos about the inspiration mechanic, you know, and, you know, I, I don't want to come off as derogatory to the, the people that make content like that, because that's absolutely not a slight. In fact, I find it absolutely awe inspiring that another YouTuber like Jenny D can produce a meaningful, well thought out 15 minute video about inspiration mechanics. Mm -hmm. Like that blows my mind. There's no way I could do that. But I feel like there's a lot of things that are not talked about, but I also don't want to waste anyone's time. Mm -hmm. You know, like I feel like on this podcast here, you're going to hear me wax poetica and I get really good at just rambling and just getting on a train of thought. So like I have a note on my paper as I'm sitting here right in front of me that says shut up to remind myself <laughs> to shut up. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a question for you. Um, since you mentioned having some experience with algorithms in particular, and we know that you are interested in geopolitics, why don't you tell our listeners what's your background? Like what do you specialize in outside of the podcast? Okay, uh, so my day job is I'm a data engineer. I have experience working with artificial intelligence. No, that's not like me trying to build myself up as some sort of like Silicon Valley genius because people who say that they talk about AI are like, you know, there are really, really smart people who write very complicated algorithms. Um, I am not one of those people, but I have enough exposure to understand how they work and how to build very rudimentary ones. Um, I also work with just marketing data systems in general. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And what's your interest in geopolitics? And geopolitics. Yeah. Okay. So I'd always been a history nerd, right? Like I love consuming history, but I feel like the biggest, okay. So let's step back for just a minute here. So geopolitics is not what it sounds like. Uh, you know, people, people hear the word politics in the word and they immediately think that, you know, we're going to start talking about which president we voted for. And that's absolutely not the case. Uh, geopolitics is the study of how 
geography or land masses influence the way that cultures and societies develop and how that geography recontextualizes the way those different cultures and societies interact with each other. And something that I feel like is largely overlooked, at least in like the the high school and middle school, and from my experience, even in like the the level 100, level 200 classes of, you know, history classes in universities is nobody talks about how geopolitics influences history. And, you know, we have this ridiculous adage of history repeats itself. Well, nobody stops to ask themselves <laughs> why, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's almost as though the land masses don't really change very much. over Exactly. Time. So, and and when they do, you feel it like there's a sudden oh, yeah. shift in the geopolitics. So, uh, you know, nobody stops to wonder, like, what are the ramifications of the fact that I live next to a mountain? You know, what are the mm -hmm. ramifications of the fact that I live in the inner city? It's it's really interesting because if you live near the mouth of a river that is relatively safe from ocean currents and that river flows through a flat basin of land all across the world, you're going to find a massive city there. It's almost without fail. You're always going to find a massive city there. And what does that actually mean? You know, like, why, why does history repeat itself? Why do political hegemonies always try to jockey for positions of power over specific types of land masses and, and uh, landforms? And that's kind of what the, the study of geopolitics dives into and uh, discusses how the world that we live in today is not just shaped by the people that came before us, but specifically how those people came before us were shaped by the geography that they lived in. So, and we can talk about that for three hours. I think that last couple of sentences is a really good summary, like to grasp it, you know, like yeah. how it's, yeah. you know, it's about how the mm -hmm. environment has shaped the way we formed our cultures mm -hmm. and interactions with each other. Right. And I think like what's really interesting in the videos that I've seen you do is especially the, the one specifically about that um, is it shows how as a world builder, that's a factor you have to consider, you know, when you're putting together a realm, even if the realm is highly fantastical, mm -hmm. it seems like there's certain mm -hmm. quote unquote logic built into human nature that would be affected by resources on the map and, and river mouths and, you right. know, and uh, climates mm -hmm. and such as that. Absolutely. Yeah. And as of recording, I think that you have a trio of geopolitical like videos right now. One is in Faerun, the other is in um, the Dark Sun setting. And the third one I'm blanking on because I don't have YouTube pulled up right now. No, it, the third one is just kind of a uh, overview of how rivers are the bedrock of right uh, mm -hmm. geopolitical existence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think anyone who's played Civ at any point in the last 10 years can probably tell you the exact same thing, or at least something very close to it. Right. But I, I too, am a big history nerd. I, I've never really dipped my toe into geopolitics outside of like a vague anthropological study of it, you know, like Jared Timon's um, Guns, Germs, and Steels, you know, like very rudimentary stuff, right? Mm -hmm. For anyone who's interested in looking at geopolitics and then translating it to a fantastical setting, or just in general, where would you recommend they start? And what are some like favorite books that you could really point to and be like, oh my God, I can tell you about this book for three hours. 
Oh, mind you, our, our podcast is only an hour. So maybe, you know, not, <laughs> not do that, but you know, tell us about them at the very least. Right. Right. Um, let's see. I don't have any key definitive book for, uh, geopolitics applied to a world building or fantasy setting. In mm. fact, I'm not sure that that exists. Of course, I'm probably wrong. Uh, it's probably out there, but I've not seen you write it. I guess that means I should mm, write it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we have uh, we have a friend of a podcast who just came out with his magic blueprint. Uh, C.R. Rowenson. He is the magic engineer on YouTube. He is fantastic. And he just came out with his how to build any magic system uh, book. And again, if if you want to do that book, you're more than welcome to come back on and promote it. We can talk about it if you want. I mean, there's all sorts of things we can talk about here, Baron. But please, I, I, I interrupted. Continue. <laughs> no. Uh, so as far as um, a book to sink your teeth into what I would call modern geopolitics, that is like the understanding of how our world is shaped today and where it is going in the near term future. A phenomenal read is Disunited Nations by Peter Zion. Ooh. It talks about how the kind of the, the policies that have guided NATO security through the Cold War are now losing steam and losing momentum and how American policymakers have largely become disinterested in international uh, foreign policy and how our absence on the world stage as Americans is impacting global trade. And really kind of, uh, you know, what what this means for uh, the next 20 or 30 years going forward and how like a possible serious breakdown in international trade could very well upset what we have all taken for granted as the status quo around the world with, you know, free trade and safe waters to, to do that trade on. Uh, very, very interesting book, but he dives into like each kind of regional area on every continent and talks about some of the the major key hegemonic players, uh, talking about India, China, Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, Europe and Germany, Russia, America, Brazil, and um, Argentina, and just kind of breaks apart like this is what their geography has set them up for success or failure for in, in the years to come. That sounds absolutely fascinating like i immediately went and put on a wish list i'm <laughs> i'm like wrapped in attention I'm like oh man that sounds amazing that sounds really fascinating to me yeah and and i think that one of the things that you know you can sit there and, and, and on premise that might not sound the most appealing to a lot of people right especially when you're talking about fantastical worlds when you're talking about dungeon masters when you're talking to storytellers that might not sound all that interesting, except how could it not when you could plug the same kind of core concepts into mm -hmm. any setting, any world, any story. And to me, when I, when I see stuff like this, when I read books like this, it is nothing but fuel for the creative fire. It is truly inspirational to me that you can take a concept, drill down to its basic components and be like, okay, now this applies to this magical setting. This applies to this magical nation. Because right. I always see them as these are universal concepts that will always play in mm. any story that you're trying to tell. 100%. And just to that end, because I know a lot of people struggle 
with like what are the ramifications of magic in my setting like mm -hmm. and honestly that's kind of why i have like a secret heartburn problem with eberron <laughs> just in general like if everybody's magical nobody's magical type of thing mm -hmm. if if people struggle with you know the believability of the ramifications i i truly invite them to look at the geopolitics of saudi arabia and study their history because it wasn't until an oil tycoon went out there and started poking around in the desert and found a crap ton of oil that all of a sudden Saudi Arabia became one of the most important countries mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of our era. You know, up until then, it was just a huge bank of sand on the coast of the uh, Indian Ocean as far as, you know, it, its landmass importance. It was just a desert. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, swap out crude oil in place of any other thing that would be important. And just think of it like it's oil. You mm -hmm. know, if it's mana crystals, okay. If it's Vespin gas, okay. You know, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't exactly. matter what it is. Whatever it is, people want it and they want lots of it. And there's only so much to go around, you know. Mm -hmm. It also makes me wonder too that knowing certain principles as, as far as um, kind of how rational actors behave with respect to like geopolitics would help you kind of construct truly either alien or non-human cultures too, because mm -hmm. you could select mm -hmm. a culture and say, well, you know, uh, this particular behavior is is typical for humans, but for this particular either fantasy race or this particular even like other human culture or alien species if it's a space faring sort of thing totally violates this concept and what what are the consequences of that i wonder like if we can think of any settings that do that or like that are based on that kind of thinking Ooh, that's a that's a good mm -hmm. thought i hadn't really thought about it from like an ecological perspective mm -hmm. other like species or speciation but mm -hmm. you know it, it it kind of it I guess geopolitics is uh, the human social component of natural mm -hmm. selection. <laughs> if you think about it like that. Right. Mm. You know? Mm. Yeah. So it makes it like you're going to build like an alpha race or something that's really, truly alien. You know, like what is it that they do that's just fundamentally not normal with human behavior? And that could be one way to look at it from like a geopolitical point of view, I guess. Absolutely. Right. That That's a great lens mm -hmm. to look at it, Daniel. I mean, one of the, one of the common gripes that I always harp on is uh, fantasy races are never fantastical enough. They're always just like reskinned humans a lot of the time. And I feel like through the lens of geopolitics, you could actually probably make it so it's a lot more alien or different as you're suggesting. Like, you know, as as something as simple as this race doesn't need nearly as much water, therefore you're far more likely to find them away from large, they don't need to be near a fresh water source nearly right. as much as humans might. And so all of a sudden your map changes entirely if this area is, I mean, there, there's so much that you can break the rules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Once you start breaking the rules, then it's like, oh, cool. Now we get to, now we really get to make things interesting and different. And I think mm -hmm. this is an excellent way to look at that because uh, from a more modern perspective, right? That race who doesn't care about fresh water might be more willing to sell their fresh water rights to other races yeah. who might not actually need it. Mm -hmm. And you can take that not just from a fantastical viewpoint, but expand that out to, you know, an intergalactic, if we're doing sci-fi for whatever godforsaken reason, then you can, you can take that okay. and you can, um, and you can expand upon that in like a planet to planet type thing too. I, I just think that there's so much interesting stuff that we can get into here. Yeah. 
absolutely and you can even kind of look in like the what is it the ocean depths in the marianas trench have we mm-hmm. am i yeah. crazy but you know the steam vents like geothermal steam vents and there's like mm-hmm. crabs that cling to the sides of these vents mm-hmm. because they need the sulfur you know and no other yeah. no other uh species on the planet is like that so you know what what does that mean for the culture of crabs that live there you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think this is such a great starting point for anyone who who is world building and really wants to make the other fantastical races that much more unique. Look at where they're going to be living and how and why that affects them and why and how it might affect their neighbors, for example. I think that's sure. a great starting mm-hmm. point. Yeah, I would I would strongly recommend to checking out um, the Your Fantasy Map is already full of quest hooks video on Dungeon Master. Oh, yeah. It's like a quick like 10 minute or so just overview of how how many things can just come off of a a really simple map of an area absolutely yeah i i can also strongly recommend that one um it actually kind of reminds me of um dale kingsmill who we've had on the show she's great uh she has a video on sperm which i always recommend people check out it's not called that for obvious reasons but it's basically (laughs) You take any region and you break it down into social, political, uh, religious, and military, right? Like you look at the lens for each settlement and like, okay, what's the conflict surrounding a social conflict, a political conflict, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how you really get to, you know, flesh that out. I think that there's something here that we can do as well with, uh, oh, I, I missed the E in sperm, which is economic mm-hmm. apologies. Um, but but it's still there, right? Like, I think that you can take a look at that and you can apply that to geopolitics as well. And I'm like, I'm already getting super excited about this conversation. So for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you had to give us like, and I know this is stuff you do in your videos, so it would be cheating. But if you had to give <laughs> us five, five principles, five, like, a, like a sperm acronym, right? From geopolitical survey for world building, what would be ones that world builders should like consider off the bat? Um. Okay, so... Instead of principles, it would be more of like, what are what are a few questions that you have to be able to answer mm. to make your world uh, have geopolitical cohesion? And that is, where are your civilizations and why are they there? Mm. Nice. And that is answered by, and you know, if we're going off of a normal human existence, a civilization needs a couple of things to survive. They need flat land that they can do agriculture on they need a river running through that flat land that will help them irrigate that land so that they can divert some of their own labor onto other crafts and trades and other skilled professions away from agriculture because otherwise you're just Mm -hmm. you know foragers Mm -hmm. and then that river enables other nearby communities to trade on that river because you can float your commodities up and downstream on a boat. And that's way cheaper than doing it with a horse and buggy way cheaper because you have to feed a horse. Mm -hmm. Right. Then the next thing you need, you need some sort of physical or geographical barrier that makes your civilization that you have developed with this river and flat land secure. Right. So you need ideally either a very imposing mountain chain, or you need a ocean that is extremely hard to get across to protect where you, you know, like where you physically are located on the planet. And if you have all of those things, you become a secure superpower. It is 
extremely difficult. It is extremely difficult for, it doesn't matter what your internal policies are, what your population's ideologies are. It does not matter what those things are. You can ascribe to any ism you want. If you have those things, you are almost doomed to great success. So, and those are kind of like the, the principles of what does a civilization need to succeed? And then you start sticking all those different civilizations that you have next to one another and analyze what do they all have for success and what do they not have? Mm-hmm. Because there's only so much, you know, earth to go around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your, your understanding of, of a society's geopolitics is, well, if these two river systems, you know, let's say, for example, uh, I'm just going to frame China, for example, the Pearl mm-hmm. River and the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. Those are like the three major river systems in China. Well, they have a lot of land in between them, and the mouths of those rivers are very distant from one another. So, but they're also protected by, you know, the Himalayan mountains and the desert. So all three river systems are in this big, huge bowl, right? They're almost entirely protected from invasion from the outside. You know, they almost never get invaded. The Mongols were the only only nation to invade China all across human history. Mm -hmm. Nobody else did it. But they've constantly, constantly been at war with each other because there's no mm-hmm. inter inter security between those things. Mm-hmm. So the only way, the only way that whole region can remain secure is if some warlord is constantly going around and making sure everybody is, you know, beat into submission to make sure nobody gets any funny ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and any any time that becomes unstable, it's over. The whole place, the whole Hmm. Chinese mainland has erupted into war. Like we Mm -hmm. even have periods of Chinese history called like the five kingdoms, 10 dynasties or the the three kingdoms periods. Like these these are all like very indicative of the kind of insane bloodshed that has been spilled because of that lack of geographical security Mm -hmm. from in between those river systems. Absolutely. And that's also because the mouths of those rivers are so distant from one another. You know, it's very it's very hard to travel by boat all the way up the Yellow Sea or all the way up the, the China Sea to, to get to your would-be neighbors. So, uh, you know, on the flip side of that, look at France. They have almost the same geography. They're in a mountain bowl protected by uh, the Alps and two other mountain ranges. I can't remember the name of them. They're small. But they kind of provide a border between uh, Germany, the Alps, the Pyrenees, and and two other ones that split Germany and France. And they have two major river systems uh what is it the cn and oh oh it's it starts with an l my geography is escaping me all of a sudden <laughs> but uh you know but the mouths of those rivers are also very close together so it's very easy to eh, well i'm just gonna hop down this other river system after you know a two-day trip mm-hmm. on the shore of the ocean and go do some trading on this river and then i'll be back in two weeks so the ability to do cultural exchange between those two river systems because their mouths are so mm-hmm. close together is very easy to do. And they're also very protected from outside invasion. And that's why the only time, the only time France has had like a serious regime change was when a populist movement in the 1700s couldn't decide if they wanted to be ruled by a republic, a despot, or a monarch. And, you know, I'm talking about the French Revolution that mm-hmm, led to, mm-hmm. you know, Napoleon Bonaparte and then finally the institution of the French Republic. 
And like that was an extremely tumultuous period in time caused by other geopolitical factors. But, uh, you know, for almost a thousand years, that was the status quo. It was a very secure, very stable in, in France for that reason. One of my favorite Charles de Gaulle quotes is um, it's basically on how the people of France are ungovernable. And it's because how can anyone rule a region with so many types of cheese? And <laughs> I, I, I love that quote for many reasons, but it sounds silly until you break it down. It's like, wow, it, it's actually talking about how complex and rich and like really multivaried all of the regions in France are. And it sounds silly on its face until you start to realize it's like, he's talking about the mountainous regions. He's talking about like all the different, as, as we're discussing the geopolitical implications of, of these regions in France and how it makes all of these people so hard to interact with and have such drastically different viewpoints. But again, it's a great summation of what we're trying to talk about here, I think. Right. Well, to that end, like what's interesting about that is that everybody has all these very different cultural or ethnic, uh, you know, polities within France, right? Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and you can absolutely see that. But because their commerce is so deeply rooted with each other, that uh, the concept of like a destabilizing hot war is just so astronomically ludicrous. Because it would destabilize the very thing that France has built over the past, you know, millennia. So, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that there are all these kinds of cheese is a testament to the security. Because mm -hmm. if there would, you know, take, for example, uh, a country that is very insecure, you know, geopolitically insecure, Russia, they're only going to have a few mm. kinds of cheese. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're only going to have. Uh, like one large cultural hegemon that, you know, has to do everything it can to control everything else or the whole thing just comes unglued. Mm -hmm. And part of part of that is through trade. And so when you have, you know, mandated trade, this is the way it's going to be. You have to adopt these cultural ideas. So you get this kind of cheese. And, you know, that might sound like I'm talking about Sovietism, but the Tsarist Russia was the same way. Kibbutz Russia was the yep. same way. So, <laughs> you know, th these these things happen this way for a reason. Yes. I know that in particular in Brittany, right, like they believe themselves to be more Celts than French. And they right. have like their their festivals that happen to go on. And I imagine that like imagine that type of spirit in Russia and how quickly it would get gobbled up by the state or or at least quashed in large part by the state. This idea of a rebellious spirit that rejects the type of culture. I, I just don't see that happening in a place like Russia, but but that's kind of neither here nor there. But still, I, I just think it's interesting to consider the implications of everything that we're talking about when we talk about geopolitics. For sure. Well, I'm sure that, look, I, I feel like we should probably pivot away from geopolitics. As much fun as I'm personally having, I know that we can probably talk a little bit more about games. And I'm, I partially brought you on because your video on Fate and the Fate Core RPG system. And I'm like, I saw Ooh. the geopolitics stuff. I saw some of the, uh, the videos that you've done on like Skyrim and Diablo. I'm like, that's cool. And then you did a video about Fate. I'm like, all right, he's coming on the podcast. We got to get him on. We got to talk about 
<laughs> I'm I'm a big fan of fate powered by the apocalypse and what they can do, not just narratively, but mechanically. So please, can we wax poetic about that for just a moment? Sure. Uh, what would you like me to say specifically? What would you like me to speak to? Oh, man. Uh, give me the pitch for your preferred RPG system and we can kind of go from there. I think is probably the best way we can go about this. Um, well, it's not fate. That's uh, fine. <laughs> mine's not fate either. <laughs> right. Uh, I say that specifically because fate, I feel like is a great example of how game design could have worked if everybody was equally invested mm. in the actual mechanics of the world and how their characters interrelated with it rather than crunchy numbers that can get away with on a character sheet. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean that, like I, I say that, you know, kind of with a bit of you know, cynical rhetoric, but like even the casual gamers who are just excited to level up in a normal fifth edition D and D game, even players who just are totally casual and they just get excited to level up, you know, and they hit fifth level and they they get fireball because they're a sorcerer. Like the fact that that's a thing has certain ramifications on the game and teaches people. And I think video games also do this uh, to some extent. Uh, they just teach people to look forward to, you know, what they're going to get next on their character sheet. Mm -hmm. And Fate Core just throws all that out the window. Absolutely. Which is a good thing as like a college thesis, but it's not practical. <laughs> you know, I feel like Fate was a PhD on game design that nobody will ever read. Oh boy, that that is that 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 hurts me in 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 a way that you don't even realize because I I remember trying to play Fate for the first time and like just my players just not really vibing with it, not really digging and and admittedly me not really knowing how to run it. It is such a departure from a lot of the I mean, I was running Pathfinder at the time and to go from Pathfinder to Fate is like Oh boy, that is that is a vast different. Yeah. Well, like to that end, like you can't there's not a single RPG out there that doesn't have some sort of, you know, character I, I like I'm sitting here stammering to myself thinking like what would be an appropriate jumping off point to go from 5th edition D&D to Fate? Like what is the middle ground there? And even Burning Wheel, I'm not mm. even sure mm. is that mm. is that game. I wonder to answer your question, like you talk about in um, one of your videos dealing with a traditional OSR, how that was, it's like carrot cake. It's, it's a totally different thing than the original OSR. It's like trying to change and improve on it rather than recreate it. But I wonder if there are some of the OSR adjacent games that form a bridge between the two. So some of the ones that are not trying to recreate old school play, but they're inspired by its simplicity. And yet they still right. do some trad thing. So I wonder if there's some games in that space you've encountered that you like. So, uh, yeah, actually, I am a huge fan. And just to to show my bias here, uh, I'm a huge fan of a subgenre of the OSR called the NSR, the New School Revolution. And it's it's kind of a uh, for those who are very unfamiliar with it because it's a very small community. It's kind of a understanding that like, OK, the OSR is rose colored glasses. Let's take the rose colored glasses off and understand exactly what we were going to, like what, mm -hmm. what actually works. And then uh, looking at, okay, if, if these are the things that work because of OSR, let's strip away all the stuff that didn't. And that's how you end up with 
like two of my favorite games right now are Mouse Ritter and Cairn, which are extremely similar to one another. Uh, Mouse Ritter is, you know, imagine OSR mice living in like they, they are fantasy mice living in a mouse fantasy world, except the fantasy world is the modern mundane human world. Like mm-hmm. there's cars driving on streets and you live in an apartment building or or in a townhouse or, you know, some some rich guy's mansion. But like the crows have scrying circles and, you know, you can go interact with frogs who are looking for the Holy Grail, um, you know, and, you know, cats are worse than dragons because you can't even kill them. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. And Cairn is uh, another uh, game that is it is in that same vein of uh, of game design where the how do I describe this? It's it's kind of the same thing. The let me let me back up here. I would say that what makes the new school revolution distinct from OSR is that it understands that we're going to have a very light framework to play a game and to have a story that that story needs to be dangerous that that danger evokes a certain kind of storytelling. And we want to have as few rules as possible that help that storytelling shine and then get rid of everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and a, usually there's also a hard lean into like uh, random tables. And specifically what I think is interesting here is that the random table that you use for whatever it is uh, the design of the random tables is just as important as your world building because it is seen as the world building. Mm. If that makes sense. Like mm. whatever you put in your random tables, whenever you want to roll, like what is this random spell that I'm making do? That has direct ramifications on the narrative of your game once somebody gets that randomly created magic item. And that's something that I'm not sure people quite get their heads around. It sounds really obvious when you say it with words, but, you know, until you sit down and you put only the most creepy, weird, dark, you know, evil grimoire stuff on what can be in these pages in a evil spell book, do you really start to uh, understand that? And when you take that much care into everything rather than like, oh, this random encounter table has 2d6 wolves on it. Moving on, you know, mm-hmm. you can't let yourself be lazy with that kind of game design. So there's a lot more. I wouldn't say there's a lot. There's a decent more amount of work up front in your game preparation, but then everything is very smooth sailing, very light work after mm-hmm. that point. I think it speaks to like a OSR, like Tenet, which is like the GM as arbiter, yes. you know, rather than like a, an active participant, which I, I'm misrepresenting a little bit, but <laughs> for all intents and purposes, I think that style of gameplay where the GM's like, I wrote all of this down, like the dice say what they say. And then, you know, they, they take the step back, so to speak. You know, I think that speaks to it a little bit, what you're talking about. No, absolutely. So to that end, I would say that uh, Karen and Mouse Ritter, uh, you know, the two authors, and I'm moderately well acquainted with one of the authors, Yukai Gall, uh, who wrote Karen. The two authors would probably laugh and scoff that I said that they're air quote the same game. Um, <laughs> but Karen and Mouse Raider and uh, I would say uh, Sean McCoy's Mothership. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Mothership kind of falls into that area. I'd like to see where he goes beyond this first edition alpha ish release. I'm extremely interested in that. 
But mm. the, those are probably my go-to, like, not just, like, my favorite games, but also, like, as game design ideological masterclasses. Like, if I'm going to build my own system from scratch, what rules are important to me? And what rules do I need in order to guide the kind of story and narrative that I want to have? And then once I have those things, get rid of everything else because it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And speaking of um, RPGs and earlier you mentioned creepy dark things, you also <laughs> have put out an RPG supplement, uh, Hordes of Darkness. Could you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah. So I got asked by some coworkers if we can play D&D, &D, except it's Diablo. And I looked <laughs> around and I found some like really old systems mm -hmm. that were like in second edition. And it, it didn't really work for fifth edition the way I wanted it to. Uh, so I extrapolated a few ideas, added some of my own. Uh, but the idea was like, what happens if you take fifth edition? And I think honestly, this is what fifth edition is really like. Fifth edition is a war game. And, you know, yeah. people get really upset when I say that. But fifth edition is a war game. And when you treat it like it's a war game, it's like Hero Quest on steroids. Mm. And when you treat it like that, it gets fun again. So I wanted to create like a random encounter system, a random treasure system that would just let you develop the most thin of absurdly ridiculous plot hooks of <laughs> there is bad guy over there. We need kill him. Go, you know, <laughs> like Solid broken bomb. English translation, JRPG. And, uh, you know, just let everybody kill a bunch of freaking monsters, man, and, and get really cool treasure. That's way broken and overpowered, specifically so you can throw even more crazy monsters at them. <laughs> you oh know, boy, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so the Diablo experience. Uh, so that that's where that came from. Awesome, fantastic. Awesome. Um, I think with Diablo references out of the way, I think it's time that we pivot over to the world building jam. Uh, I would ask you if you're ready, Baron, but everyone knows that you're not. No one ever is. So we're gonna go ahead. <laughs> pull up the world building jam session and we're going to roll some dice to see what we get. Okay. So the way that this works is that we're going to roll some dice. That's going to determine the genre of the setting that we're going to be creating off the cuff today, the theme and the first thing that we're focusing on and Baron, as our guest, you're going to be the one who's going to be starting this off. So, you know, rev your engines, okay. let's get this started. The first thing that we're going to be figuring out is the genre. And the genre that we're going to be focusing on for this scenario is going to be a noir detective story. Mm. So the theme surrounding this noir detective is going to be fury. Okay. And the thing that we're focusing on first is going to be a weapon. Appropriate, I think, all things considered. That's extremely mm. appropriate. Yeah. So, Baron, start us off here. We've got a setting or a story that takes place within a noir detective uh, setting or, or genre, I guess. We've got the theme of Fury, and we're focusing on a weapon. So where does your brain go? Start us off. Okay, so I think I want to specifically have two weapons, not one. Oh, my. And... I say this because you have to have a like a, a subversive conflict going on for, you know, noir detective stuff to work. <laughs> so I'm thinking that this may be like a Romeo and Juliet situation 
where you have Ooh. a mob boss who is in a bitter cold war with another mob on the other side of town across the river or across the railroad track. But this uh, this mob boss's niece or something has found herself in a romantic secret relationship with the son of the other mob boss's uh, family, mm-hmm. of course. So rather than like doing the Romeo and Juliet where, you know, two houses are both alike in dignity and then learn to love each other at the end of the story, our story begins when they realize that both of them are dead. Ooh. And they have not learned their lesson. Did we leak this to you before? Did you just have this ready to go? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you gave me the prompts, so I'm rolling with it. Am I? Do I need to let somebody else have a turn? Or not I... at all. This is this is a great starting point. I'm loving this already. Okay, just let him solve it all himself. Yeah, right. Like we don't even need to do anything. This makes our job much easier. I have to admit. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you have uh, obviously you're going to have a Tommy gun, right? And you've got <laughs> the extremely brash other cousin or nephew who you know, catches wind of the whole thing. And this is where the fury really starts to come out. Okay, here we go. He just he just goes totally like insane. I'm going to eliminate anybody in this family who even came close to touching my little cousin. You know, like you put your hands on her. Everybody has to burn. So he is on a mass rampage. And then, and I imagine that's where our detective comes in, right? And then he mysteriously dies. Oh, oh, okay. He gets okay. stabbed to death with a letter opener mm. multiple, multiple, multiple times. Okay. And the whodunit is who stabbed him with the letter opener. Okay. So we've got the conflict. Interesting. So that's, that's where I'm going to leave it. That's where we're going to start. Daniel. Help us make sense of all this here. What what do you got for us here? Boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what um can we expand on the setting itself? Like the location it's happening in? Uh I mean it's a cold dark night in Noiropolis. <laughs> like is this a modern setting, a sci-fi, a fantasy? Because it's noir, but this could oh, be in multiple places. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I hear noir and I immediately you know, Chicago, 1942, like something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like I, I think of Casablanca or yes. I think of, of uh, uh, oh, don't take my nerd card away from me. What's the Maltese movie? Falcon? No, not so, Maltese Falcon is a good one. I'm thinking of Blade the, Runner. Blade Runner. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, either of those. That's where I go. So this is up to you. This is this okay. is your decision. I, I feel like, Daniel, where are where are we? I think it should be something unexpected. Ooh. Um. You know, like, <laughs> I can't even think of a noir fantasy. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of noir fantasies. I'm trying to think of a, you, what if you did like a sword and sorcery noir fantasy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something really unusual. I, I think we can go that route. So we've got a sword and sorcery type thing. Uh, how, how sword and sorcery do we really want to go with it here exactly? Can we go, I don't mean to interject, but can we go sword and sandal? Yeah, sword why not? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Because then we can keep your weapon, sort of. Maybe it's not a Tommy gun. Maybe it's I was like going to say, uh, not the Tommy gun. Yeah. You know, maybe it's like a, what was that steam-powered machine gun we had talked about <laughs> in the past? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe he just went with like a crossbow on a rampage, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, w- okay, let, let's clarify sword and sandal for everyone here, because 
when you say sword and sandal, that to me implies like ancient Greek, but maybe we're on different pages here. What are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, anything from like 500 BCE to 50 AD. Gotcha. Okay. So in my mind, this cousin is just hurling pylums pretty much everywhere. Like anyone <laughs> who's in the way is just getting to pylum through the chest. That's where my right. brain goes. <laughs> All right. So I, I love I love that idea because now this to me honestly sounds like the setup for a a Trojan War. This to me is not Ooh. Romeo and Juliet. It is this is it's the goddamn Trojan War. That's what I'm trying to say. That's where I'm starting out, and that's what I would like to kind of toss in there. I think that's a great way that we can start it too. Daniel, excellent idea. Trying to pivot away from the traditional setting. I like that a lot. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Yeah, of course. So, so what do we, we, we've got a Trojan war situation going on. What are the stakes? What are the stakes that we're looking at here? Exactly. Is it the brink of total war or is it something else? Something perhaps more. Hmm. What if it's happening um, in the city ahead of the Trojan horse? Oh. And so that the issue is like, they don't want the populace to just like murder each other completely mm -hmm. before they have a chance to actually defend the city. I love that idea. I love the idea that the war is completely, it's like Baron kind of alluded to, it's like Casablanca where the war mm -hmm. is in the background. Yeah. It's never off screen. It's always in the background because there's this other story that is taking place that is much more important. And the focus is on these characters. And yeah, the war's there. It's going to happen. It's definitely coming. We're going to feel the implications of it. But we're really focused on Humphrey Bogart here. You know, like that's the type of thing <laughs> I, that I think if you have interfamily conflict and it's like, hey, this is really taking away from the war effort. We should really pay attention to that giant horse they just parked mm -hmm. inside. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I think that's a really cool way that we can kind of approach this thing too. And then for a main character, um, what if we kind of continue to flip the noir thing and have a female main character? Maybe she's um, a priestess or something to that effect. Oh, I like that. Who's been kind of brought in in some way. Absolutely. That would make sense because, you know, like she's an oracle who has been brought Ooh. in mm. and is trying to decipher what the heck happened. You know, why is this man who went on a rampage killed? And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that. I wonder then um, if the like the villain needs to have a way of countering an oracle's power, especially if we're talking about a mystery where that's critical to the narrative working. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, does the oracle actually have power? Oh, I well, like that's that. always that's always the question. It is, yeah. <laughs> well, I love where we where we are right now. I'm really, really digging this. So I think that it's time to, you know, kind of throw a monkey wrench into things and roll for the twist. So we're going to roll on the twist list and see what happens. All right. According to the twist list, the world is much smaller than you think. Hmm. Uh, now we can interpret that in any way that we want to, what are our first thoughts? That the Oracle was the one who killed him and she doesn't remember. Ooh. Oh, damn. She has amnesia for some reason. Interesting. Okay. Are, are we talking about like spirit possession? Is, is it like that type of thing? I have no idea. <laughs> well, is the, have we decided who the villain really is? No. No, not yet. Okay. I mean, if the Oracle is the villain, then what is the reason why the Oracle has forgotten what she knows? Well, maybe the Oracle themselves aren't the villain, but they were like controlled or maybe like possessed during the, you know, because 
I'm thinking traditional Oracle of Delphi. They're they're sitting over these volcanic fumes and inhaling, right? <laughs> like, what happens if this third party kind of sprinkles something else that is essentially, you know, like bath salts into <laughs> that day's kind of mystical offerings? And suddenly there's a mind control element or there's something a little bit more magical going on. Yeah, or what if... Um... And maybe this could be related to, but what if a god gets involved, actually, who's like yep. on the opposing side and and they're the one that set this whole thing in motion? I, I feel like if that's the case, we're really playing into like the Greek tragedy aspect mm-hmm. of it. And that is something that I really love and would love to like nail down for sure. It would seem that there's some politics then happening on the divine side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are these warring mobs mobsters are they actually opposing uh religious institutions yes so is one mm-hmm. worshiping you know bacchus and the other worshiping zeus or you know some babylonian god or is that a ba- my babylonian mm. apology is terrible well, we could do marduk if we want to go you yeah. know or, or tiamat if we want to keep it traditional <laughs> even though i know they're yeah, completely yeah. different that's not you know it's just a joke <laughs> yeah uh, well, that that's an interesting way. To, do we want to approach it as though they're completely competing pantheons or do we want to approach this, its interpantheonic conflict? I think I made that word up, but you, you get what I'm trying to get at here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like interpantheonic it's because good. then it's closer to home. You know? It is a good made up word, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Internecine conflict. Is that how they say it? Internecine. You know what? Uh, okay, so so it's within the same pantheon. This conflict, I, sure. I understand that much. Uh, it, where can we end it? Where, what's the what's the kind of resolution point here? Oh, I mean, I guess the priestess would probably have to find out the ultimate truth and mm-hmm. suffer the consequences. It's a Greek tragedy, yeah, right? Like yeah, so probably, the suffering of the consequences. Probably yes. gouge her eyes out or something like. <laughs> That, just because that happens in one out of every three Greek tragedies doesn't mean that it happens here, Courtney. <laughs> Is the Oracle really complicit? Oh, so we get like a Kaiser Soze moment where it's like, oh, I was manipulated this whole time. And in actuality, they're they're actually the ones who's behind it. <laughs> and they like defect. Yeah, I would really like if the Oracle has some agency in the end and that she realizes that she's mm-hmm. the, she's technically the killer, but she also knows there's a conspiracy against her. And so part mm-hmm. of the adventuring party's goals would be to side with the Oracle and really get back at whatever divine comedy is being played on them. Mm-hmm. 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 I like that. That's interesting. That's fun. I, I like this idea that the Oracle is somehow playing all of the sides against one another in some way. Or even, yeah, even for her own survival. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And it, and it does play into, like, the femme fatale kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everyone loves a good femme fatale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Those are my favorite kind of characters. <laughs> yeah, understandably. <laughs> uh, I think that we've got this amazing setup. I think that we leave the ending. I think we leave it unresolved because I feel like that would implore people to offer us their own endings to this type of story, right? Oh, but, and I mean, if we're going to world build for RPGs, we should leave it to the players. Of course, you got to have open hooks all over the place, right? Yeah, right. The least safe fishing store of all time. <laughs> okay. And with that, we're going to conclude the world building jam. 
Uh, that was really fun. I love some of the twists and turns that we took there. Now, now it's time for the lightning round where we just blast questions at you really quickly. Baron, uh, my wife wants to know, is cereal a soup? Uh, cereal is not a soup. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Baron, what have you been playing recently? What have I been playing? Mouse Herder? That's about it. <laughs> gotcha. And Courtney and Daniel, jump in with yours. Um, what was your most unexpected failure in an RPG? Ooh. Oh, man. To, what's the word I'm looking for? My most unexpected failure would have been to misunderstand the amount of emotional investment my players had in my own world building. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's, that is a great piece of advice for anyone. Daniel, do you have a rapid fire question? My favorite classic question is, um, what is your favorite character death? And that is a character that you played. Oh, I thought we opened it up so it can be one that you just witnessed. Well, I'd like to know if he has one of, of his own that got killed. Gotcha. That he, <laughs> gotcha. I have never played a character that has died, and I've only played like as a player probably less than two dozen times. Oh, wow. Then we have no choice but to see a witness death. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, a witness death. Um, I was playing in a campaign that was about two and a half years long in the making. And, you know, I had sent them on a number of uh, time traveling MacGuffin quest fetching type of ordeals. And it was very obvious that the players were nearing the end of the story. And uh, it was a it was a time travel epic about how vampires were using a magical device in order to control the celestial sphere and cause an eclipse to happen 24 seven. Mm. That was that was the vampire's goal. And uh, the players were in a dungeon on one of the last MacGuffin hunts in order to stop this from happening. And they got into a conflict with some of these vampire underlings. And just on a random table, like earlier that game session, they were they were in a crypt and they went looking through some of the sarcophaguses and were like, I want treasure. What's in these places? What's in this one? I don't know here. I'll just roll on the random 5e thing and gave the guy a filter of love, which, wow. you know, that's totally random. I was like, hmm. I don't know what this guy's going to do with this. Well, we get to, you know, the air quote boss fight room. And the players are having a knockdown drag out. And, you know, I, I think everybody's like level 11 or 5e. So they're pretty durable. But uh, like everybody is just really struggling and tons of spells are going off. Water is, you know, somebody has created a crap ton of water. I can't remember what what the circumstances of it was. It was to try and like flood the room and make it difficult terrain. Uh, and then another cleric comes in and starts casting control water to shift the water back and forth underneath <laughs> the vampire's feet so that they're standing in effectively to them acid. Super, super clever. And one of the players drops while the water is rushing over their body. Oh, yeah. And because they're on death saves, you know, we inferred some mechanics and decided, OK, you lose some failures like this should be bludgeoning damage. Give me con saves for drowning, et cetera, et cetera. And the dice were just against this character. They were it wasn't working. And that entire campaign we played for nearly two and a half years. That was the only character death that whole campaign. Wow. And wow. we were probably 
four weeks out from concluding the campaign with an epic story. And I remember like the whole thing stopped. Like everybody at the table was was just like aghast. Like you could hear a pin drop. Nobody talked for probably (laughs) three minutes. And Tanya, the girl who uh, was playing the character who died, like I saw tears welling up in her eyes. And Chance, the guy who I had given the filter of love to, was like, screw this. I take the filter of love and I cram it down the vampire's throat. Make your save. And I was like, okay. I make the save. I I had no idea where it was going. And he failed the save and became he became the best friend of the party because he drank the filter of love <laughs> and they were all were like help save our friend and they the vampires stopped the combat and carried the dead body out of the dungeon and she showed up this character i allowed it to return six sessions later at the final boss fight as a vampire and i gave the character sheet back to the player who originally was running it and i was like you get to decide are you on the side of the of the vampires or are you on the side of the players? So she was a vampire. She had some cooler abilities. Uh, you know, she was like one or two levels lower because her character died at that time. But, you know, she got pulled into the ranks that's of amazing. the vampires yeah, because awesome. of that filter of love. And like that whole story about the character death and just how it evolved over the next six sessions. A uh, total blast. Yeah, it's amazing. I love that. It's the power of the game. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was all just because of one dumb random <laughs> magic item that I like I don't have mental fortitude to think about this right now. You've asked me 17 million <laughs> questions. <laughs> you know, here, have a filter of love. <laughs> Some impressive problem solving on their part too. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I miss playing with that group. A lot of them have, you know, scattered to the winds. Two of them have moved to Europe mm-hmm. and, you know, the we're adults and life has just happened but i will still occasionally text that group and just thank them for like the best dungeons and dragons i have ever played by far (laughs) in my life it's phenomenal (laughs) and on that note are any of them content creators because my next question is who is someone you would love to shout out who is not yourself maybe an author or a content creator, someone who you don't think gets enough love and and deserves more eyeballs on their project. No, for sure. Uh, I'd like to shout out two people, if you don't mind. Oh my God, this has never happened before. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you are into terrain making for your Dungeons and Dragons game, like if you're just crafty or artistic at all, I have found that probably the most refreshing and colorful crafting projects on YouTube come out of Frankie D crafter check him out everything he makes is just completely whimsical and cartoony and cheap and easy and you'll think to yourself I could never paint something like that but if you just do what he does like you can have some crazy Aztec ruins for your players to fight goblins on if you use miniature mm. D&D game amazing stuff secondly I would uh, ask everyone to check out the Kickstarter projects by bolt neck opossum uh i've become pretty well acquainted with some of those guys uh, it's two gentlemen their latest project oh gosh they're gonna kill me because i can't quite remember the name of it but it is a uh project that like really dives into the biological diversity of of like how would races develop their culture based on like the certain ramifications and like really leaning into the ramifications of their own biology mm-hmm. so you know, if constructs never forget anything, 
Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Like, does that make them an extremely begrudging race? You know, because mm-hmm. they never forget everything like it was yesterday. They have a perfect memory and they have a, a most of their projects are uh, very small OSR ish, like zine type format content. Uh, but their second publication is is really thought provoking. So, yeah, check both of those guys out. Fantastic. And our final question, Baron, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, uh, I am only on YouTube. I have not got myself to uh, try anything. I don't really even want to get onto Twitter. That just seems like a disaster waiting to happen, knowing my personality. It is. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, uh, you can look me up at Dungeon Masterpiece on YouTube. Fantastic. All right. Baron DeRop, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real blast. Thank you for having me. This has been a great conversation. And we're back. Uh, I'm sure that geopolitics is not necessarily for everyone, but I had a fucking blast talking about that type (laughs) of stuff because I think it's the type of storytelling that I'm really interested in. And I, like I said in the interview, I find that type of, of universal kind of core concepts that we're talking about to be like the creative fuel that really gets me going. That's definitely one of the, my favorite things about that. Yeah, no, agreed. I mean, I I do think there's a lot to say for the believability aspect, the realism aspect that it brings when you when you bring these concepts into like some completely fantastical world, as long as you have these ideas that are based on human civilization, then it it all makes sense somehow. Absolutely. And one of my favorite things I think that we talked about and uh, Daniel, give you credit for this for bringing it up is the idea of finding a way to make your fantastical races feel more alien. I thought that adding the geopolitical thing into it was a really great way to, uh, to, to add that flavor and difference. Yeah. I think what's valuable um, when we think about world building is making sure we have toolkits available. Right. Mm. So, you know, Mm. when we're talking about Justin Alexander, we have toolkits for building um, the nodes that's that structure your scenario. Right. Mm-hmm. When we talk to um, a C.R. Rowison, we get toolkits for building magic systems. And here mm-hmm. we have like toolkits almost for building the, 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 the reason why your civilization is where it is and why they have these relationships with each other. So it's like the more people's, uh, the more people you can read who give you toolkits, mm-hmm. like the better, because whether mm-hmm. you use the tool or not, it's up to you, but it gives you the options to really flesh out, like Courtney was saying, to really give your fantasy some believability absolutely very well said daniel mm-hmm. well i think that's gonna do it for this episode of world build with us what do you guys think yeah mm-hmm. cool all right well it, i mean if that's the case then i've got more things to plug uh, again a big big thank you for baron Durop for joining us for this week's episode Remember that if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, where if you follow the link, do all the stuff, we will build your world within a reasonable amount of time. If you want to follow us on social media, we are over at Let's World Build. If you want to come join our Discord and chat about world building or, you know, anything in particular, you can always follow the link for that in the description. And if you're feeling particularly generous or you just want access to our sweet, sweet patron only episodes, you can follow the link for that in the description as well. That'll do it for this episode of World Build with us. Remember that we love you very much. We're going to get through this together until next week. Bye.